So it, it is my great honor now to introduce um, Patty Pendergrass, who's provost of, as I'm sure you know, of Trinity College, and we're particularly grateful. We've asked for a provocation, something to get us all thinking. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll get that uh, from Patty, and we're really grateful for a major change in schedule to, to be with us as well. Thanks, Patty. Uktaran uh, here, Michael D. Higgins, members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen. I would like to thank uh, you for the invitation here, to thank Elizabeth uh, for the invitation to address you this afternoon. Uh, when um, Elizabeth uh, asked me to speak, she said I could give a provocation <coughs> as much as a talk, uh, and I've taken her at her word. So my title today is Academic Freedom, uh, a Provocation, and uh, I put a question mark after provocation, because uh, I think the question is, who does it provoke? Uh, so rather than delivering a sustained argument, uh, my intention is to make a number of uh, provoking comments, which I hope can stimulate debate afterwards. Unfortunately, I have to go to an IUA President's meeting directly after this to discuss this very same Universities Act, to discuss the Employment Control Framework and all the other constraints that are acting on the higher education sector. So I won't be able to participate in that debate, but the Vice Provost and Chief Academic Officer, Linda Hogan, will be here for that. Uh, I should say that academic freedom is something that I've been thinking about uh, a lot and touched on in a number of speeches that I've given since I've become provost. Some of the current tendencies to undervalue academic freedom are the product of recent developments. And like anyone dealing with a, a kind of new world order that we have uh, in austerity, uh, so to speak, many of us are feeling our way in how to uh, deal with these issues. I'd like to say at the outset, of course, that I'm speaking only as, as the provost of Trinity College and the remarks that I will make uh, you know, are in that capacity, not on behalf of the sector as a whole. So I don't know, indeed, that other university presidents would agree with me. In Trinity College Dublin, we've written academic freedom into our statutes. And I won't quote the entire passage. It takes up three paragraphs. But I, I will define academic freedom, uh, I will quote it to define academic freedom as we do it in Trinity. The freedom subject to the norms of scholarly inquiry to conduct research, teach, speak and publish without interference or penalty, no matter where the search for truth and understanding may lead. And the passage ends with this, and this was debated a lot at the time. The college will seek to develop the search for truth as a part of the experience of teaching and learning, relying not on the imposition of authority or acceptance of received knowledge, but rather on the exercise of the critical faculties of the human mind. These statements, I think, are uncontroversial. I expect most good universities have defined academic freedom in similar terms. But however universities define academic freedom, it's not something that commands attention on a day-to-day -day basis, either, I think, within the university or outside. Sometimes academic freedom is equated with freedom of speech, we tend to think that as long as academics are not being censored outright or imprisoned for their views, then academic freedom is intact. This is the wrong way of looking at it, because we overlook the more subtle, the more insidious threats that there are to academic freedom. So I think it's, it's helpful to start by uh, discussing academic freedom uh, more precisely. If you look at the statutes in which I've just quoted, academics claim the freedom to research, teach, speak, and publish without interference or penalty, subject to the norms 
of scholarly inquiry. And this, subject to the norms of scholarly inquiry, is crucial. We don't claim freedom of speech to teach and publish on any subject. I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer. If I was to start spouting on, say, theology or, I don't know, French literature, uh, I could invoke my right to freedom of speech, but I couldn't invoke academic freedom because I'd be talking about something outside my expertise and using no norms of scholarly inquiry to substantiate my argument. So in a way, academic freedom starts, in my view, with a curtailment. We claim the freedom to research, teach, speak, and publish only in those areas which we've devoted profound study, on which we have uh, an expertise so as we can share that knowledge uh, for the public good. Knowledge that sits within the rigorous intellectual tradition of our discipline. Our sense of that tradition, of all the thinkers in our discipline who have come before us, makes us aware of academic freedom as a privilege and as something hard won, an outcome uh, through, of a thorough grounding as researchers and scholars in our field. In fact, academic freedom in a way brings a weight of responsibility that it's not something that we can claim lightly. Some people probably don't even want it because the responsibility comes with it. Uh, and, but we know in the best universities and universities in Ireland that it's not something that we can escape. It's part and parcel of university life. This is a crucial point when we talk about the freedom to conduct research, teach, speak and publish. What we're really talking about is the freedom to set the academic agenda. That is the freedom to decide what and how to research and to teach. Now I emphasize research and teach because in Trinity, as in other research-led universities, the two are inextricable. Now this is not the way everywhere. I meet many university presidents who say to me, yeah, you have your research staff and you have your teaching staff and two separate tracks and that's it. But that's not the way, generally speaking, it's done in Irish universities. The two are uh, inextricable. And what research we do ultimately decides in a way what we teach. And what we teach inspires the research our students will get involved with. It may seem, again, that this is uncontroversial to claim the freedom to set the academic agenda. But this entails the freedom to decide on what staff to appoint to academic posts and how to remunerate them and how to promote them. Subject, of course, to sound uh, budgetary discipline. The university has to live within its funding. Uh, ultimately, who you appoint is also important because it determines the research direc directions and the curriculum in the institution. Now, I, I became Provost of Trinity College just under two years ago, and at my inaugural address in September 2011, I raised concerns about what I called constraints acting in higher education. And let me quote what I said then. To compete globally, I need to have the flexibility and decision-making powers the same flexibility that other presidents of leading universities can count on, particularly with regard to hiring and promotions. At the moment, I need to ask for permission for what I do. That's what I said then two years ago. And in the two years since that speech, things haven't got better. The university's amendment bill, which has just been mentioned, and the employment control framework represent more control. During the week, we got a directive to reduce the number of staff uh, employed in universities by a further 2.5%. How we're going to do this, uh, I don't know. And, and the thing is, even if you have the money to pay for it, you still have to reduce by 2.5%.
So this is, a, this is very controlling, that's my point. It's tying the hands of universities and preventing us from offering the very best education and research that we can offer within our budgets. And I think we must uh, account for, too, uh, a global competition between universities. Now, some difficulties arise in using this word global because it, it harkens to globalization and to neoliberalism and all kinds of things that, as a mechanical engineer, I, I, I've, I've figured out that I don't really understand after having many arguments with people about it. But really, the global competition between universities uh, isn't a myth. It's, it actually happens. There's a competition for talent. And uh, it's not just talented staff, it's also talented students. Human beings are highly mobile now, moving around across borders in a way they haven't done beforehand. And this means that some institutions can get stronger in this competition for talent and others uh, won't be able to maximize their uh, their capacity and ability to attract talent. So when a university's independence to take decisions on hiring, remuneration, and research funding, and tuition fees indeed, are curtailed, then the direction of third-level education is being subtly controlled. It's being controlled by le levers of funding. And this means that universities are not free to set their academic agendas. Um, not free, in a way, to add the maximum value that they could to the societies in which they are embedded. Uh, and their academic freedom is insidiously compromised. And when I say insidious, I don't mean treacherous or perfidious, but in the sense that it's gradual, subtle, and harmful. And I'm sure that those who propose and back the employment control framework uh, and the universities bill do not intend to threaten academic freedom. I, I know many of these individuals, and I know they're motivated by a sense of doing good for the country in these difficult times. But I do think the full implications of these measures simply haven't been considered. And I believe these measures are proposed because people are unclear about what universities are accountable for and to whom they should be accountable. An alternate uh, subtitle for today's uh, talk suggested by the organizers was, whose universities are they anyway? Now, I didn't go with this title because, frankly, I think it's too explosive to try and answer this question. Ireland, I doubt if Ireland is really, at this stage, ready for such a debate about whose universities are they anyway. Do they belong to the government? Do they belong to the people? Do they belong to the students? Uh, are they here to serve the market uh, and produce commercial research for industry? Now, there are all kinds of models for higher education, and we could go into this, and you probably will, in, uh, as part of the debate. At one extent, there is a dirigiste model, one where government identifies skills gaps in the market and directs universities to concentrate resources on those disciplines currently in demand, while cutting off resources to disciplines where there is less immediate need. In this respect, the government is the planner. On the other hand, there may be student, a student-driven model. This is also out there, often talked about, which treats universities like service providers and students as uh, end users or customers who get to decide what's working and what isn't. Student demand drives the system. Now, we're, we've gone through an interesting process in Ireland recently designing a student survey, for example, where all universities will get students in all universities will get the same survey. And uh, an analysis will be done to see, I guess, which students in which universities are most satisfied. This is a student-driven model. I wouldn't agree with it either, frankly, and I don't know if many people here would. But there is a great uh, push for that uh, uh, 
student as a customer model for how universities function. Do you, so do universities belong to the students or to the government? Uh, when I consider the role of universities, my answer always comes back to their dual function. Universities confer both the public and the private good. They confer a private benefit on the individual student who gains the skills and education to pursue an interesting career and a, and a fulfilling life. And they confer a public benefit in terms of educating the citizens uh, and workers who provide essential services, drive the economy, and indeed as citizens uh, safeguard democracy. So whose universities are they anyway? Um, they are society's universities, I suppose, in a way. They operate in the public interest. They are among key civic institutions, like the judiciary or like the media, which keep society going and without which it is quite impossible to imagine a functioning modern democracy. You're all uh, familiar, I suppose, with Montesquieu's separation of powers into the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. And you all know that to these was added a fourth estate, the press or the media, which should also act independently in a democracy. It seems that we can credit Edmund Burke uh, as the first to use the phrase fourth estate uh, to describe the press in 1789. And I'm delighted that a Trinity alumnus contributed to this great debate. Montesquieu came up with three powers and Burke added a fourth. But of course, it's not all about numbers. What counts is proper separation between the different actors in a civic society. Each must function independently and must be enabled, indeed, indeed compelled, to take responsibility for their actions. Industry might be another example uh, of such uh, democratic players. In democracies, we don't see state-controlled industry as the best route to economic success. Another example is universities and centers of higher learning. So when we talk about universities, uh, or talk about the independence of universities and the freedom to set the academic agenda, we're tapping in, I think, to something fundamental to the way our democracies run. Universities today are expected to play a key role in driving the economy. They're encouraged to commercialize, research and grow the innovation ecosystem. Now, all this is unequivocally a good thing. But curtailing the independence and room for maneuver, the academic freedom of universities, if you like, uh, has a distortionary effect. Uh, and it prevents them from sustaining the ecosystems in which they exist. Uh, I'm going to just finish now with a few, more, a few words about students. But a good university, such as, such as, for example, I think Trinity to be, but also many other universities in Ireland, of course, they're all, uh, all quite uh, good and high-ranking universities and well-respected throughout the world. They seek to develop critical thinking in their students, independence and initiative, uh, and so on. Uh, universities do this in a variety of ways, such as through original research, extracurricular activities, and encouraging an innovative mindset. Uh, this innovative mindset might seem very new. Uh, we have a historian as the senior lecturer in Trinity College at the moment, Dr. Patrick Gagan. Uh, and I asked him to go away and develop some policies about uh, a Trinity education for the next strategic plan. And he came back with a document from 1847, <laughs> which talked about, would you believe it, critical thinking and independent mind of the students. So it's nothing new, really. Uh, innovation might be a different way of describing what we've known for a long time. Um, 
And I think there is a consensus that the skills uh, gained uh, in university are beneficial to the individual and to society at large. And everyone is agreed on the need to nurture independent thinking and leadership skills in students and on the need for a university's research to feed into economic development. But how can universities encourage independence and responsibility in our students unless they themselves are independent and accountable? How can they encourage decision-making skills when they cannot themselves take decisions on staff hiring, on budgets, and on research prioritization? How can they innovate and come up with exciting new products and services in an environment of control and curtailment? If you look at the great universities of the world, the universities that support uh, vibrant and successful societies, vibrant and successful innovation ecosystems, what characterizes them is a high degree of autonomy. I could go as far as to state that universities with the ability to act independently is a key indicator of successful autonomy, a key indicator of rather a successful society and successful innovation ecosystems. And I think this is becoming recognized even in countries where independence of universities would not have been the norm. They're starting to introduce independent universities. And in this respect, perhaps Ireland is going in reverse. This is not only to do with uh, mentoring innovative and independent students. It reaches beyond that into the long-term research agenda. Now, we, also have, we all know how research funding works. You can effectively silence commercially unviable research, not through censoring it, but through denying it funds. And one insidious way of doing this is to uh, separate it from the teaching function. I've had conversations in Ireland about this now where, ah, well, you know, academic staff are, should be taught to teach. And I say, no, they're taught to teach and do research. Ah, well, the research part will separate out and will fund that separately through competitive grants. And the academic staff uh, who are not active then in research just do more teaching. That would mean not active in the research that is prioritized through research funding streams. Uh, that being said, of course, we aren't naive or or utopic, we know it's impossible to prevent uh, inequality in funding. And at any moment in history, there's always going to be a particular demand for particular research. That's just what happens. But if we accept this, we also accept what is profitable, important, and in demand today may not be so tomorrow. Today, we suffer in, a, in a, this real savage global recession. Uh, and we understand only too well the uh, problems of focusing on the short term uh, and for profit. Corporations and institutions around the world now seek long-term sustainability and third-level research feeds more directly into the economy than ever before and the need for long-term sustainability in research becomes ever more pressing. Who can say which research will prove important in the future? The answer is, of course, no individual corporation or institution or government can claim to hold the key to long-term sustainability. But it is fair to say that experience and expertise goes a long way. And I believe an excellent researcher, an excellent academic, is in the best position to predict what might be the long-term trends and growth areas in his or her discipline. He or she can better identify the innovations which may prove uh, groundbreaking. And academic freedom recognizes this. And that is why academic freedom itself is uh, a feature in highly innovative societies, in the universities in highly innovative societies. 
when it comes to the research which will power the future, universities collectively have great experience and expertise. Of course, there's always an element of risk, but there is less risk than when the decision is taken out of their hands and given to people without direct responsibility for university teaching and research. This, of course, ties in to what I have said about academic freedom as a hard-won privilege. Universities claim the freedom to set the academic agenda, including the research agenda, not from a sense of entitlement, but because we believe we are best positioned to determine the academic agenda and to deliver that in the public good. Universities are also, I believe, well armoured against the seduction of the short-term objectives. And I'm repeating this point again, but successful uh, economies, successful societies, successful knowledge economies, to use a phrase often currently used, are those that put their trust in their universities. And the trust, they trust what may look like strange or maverick decisions. They trust them because they will eventually add to the sum of human, uh, human knowledge, lead perhaps to wisdom as well as to uh, wealth creation. Successful uh, knowledge economies, successful societies give their universities freedom to set their own agenda. And I believe that we in Ireland understand the importance of an independent university sector. All our traditions are geared towards autonomy and independence. And this uh, is of a great advantage to us, this tradition, in a time when higher education institutions, when universities and institutes of technology and so on are becoming ever more important to our prosperity and well-being. Edmund Burke coined the phrase, the fourth estate at a time when the press was gathering in importance and becoming a professional force. Naturally, at the time, government sought to influence this new force and sometimes succeeded. But the press was able to articulate the value uh, of its being separate and independent of government. Today, with the growth of online media, the fourth estate faces unprecedented challenges but it has helped in confronting those challenges by a distinct sense of identity that it has carved out over the past 250 years. The fourth estate has been able to do this because it understands its importance as a key democratic player, a key player in a democratic society. It understands that the public interest, the public good, is best served by press autonomy. autonomy. It understands that the media is one of those powers like the judiciary, which must operate freely if democracy is to operate well. Now the phrase, an attack on the freedom of the press, is a rallying cry. The public will rally to that cry. Its implications are immediately understood by all. Now maybe it's a provocation to put here, what do we have to do, those of us who uh, work in uh, universities and institutions of higher learning, so that an attack on the freedom of universities, the independence of universities, is similarly seen as something detrimental to the public good. Whose universities are they anyway? Well, the universities are for all society, acting in the public interest according to the best judgment, experience and expertise of their governing boards and academic councils. A judgment and expertise that uh, uh, enables them to use academic freedom in an accountable way for the public good. Like all key democratic players, they need to have the trust 
of the public to operate effectively. And I believe our universities have that trust. The standard of our third level institutions, the excellence of our graduates, is something the whole country and indeed the whole world takes pride in. Our graduates are well respected throughout the world, no matter wherever they may go. It is up to the sector to draw on that pride and trust to articulate the vital importance of what we do. We must come together to uphold academic freedom in the full understanding that such freedom is inseparable from the freedom to act independently as institutions. Thank you very much.